Fathers, we study your word. Let us be honest. And let us be your church. Teach us, Holy Spirit, your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick this up back in verse 32 of chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The church being the church. I love the picture that we see here. They had everything in commune. This was not communism. Communism states what's yours is mine. This is commonality, which states what's mine is yours. Sharing all things, looking out for each other, taking care of each other, and doing it spontaneously, lovingly, freely. We'll, We'll talk about that. But this is a people who are living out the fruit of the abundant grace of God in their lives. They know they're blessed. They know they're under grace. This is a people, remember, who were Jewish primarily. Who had been under law their entire history. And suddenly now they're under grace and it's affecting every fiber of their being. But sometimes there are spots on the apples. Sometimes there are bugs in the orchard, especially when things get left untended or overlooked. I received an accidental text on Thursday from from a sister. It was intended for her husband. That's never good. In this case, it was okay. It was nothing embarrassing or personal. But as I later discovered, it was based on a conversation that they had had with some friends the previous night. Some confusion and some sharing and some... Just uh, dismay over this conversation. I won't get into that, but I want to tell you the text, and I do have permission. She wrote, when the church becomes comfortable, Christianity starts to die. And then she added, that scared me this morning. When the church becomes comfortable, Christianity starts to die. Does that thought frighten you at all? Well, it scared her. And I was amazed in receiving that text at the timing of it as to what I was studying for this morning. What I was looking at right then. Let me encourage you. Let me be very clear with you. Remember what Jesus said. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. And he said, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What exactly does that mean? The gates of Hades. Oftentimes it's preached that the gates of Hades are like the gate that's holding back the horde of hell and they're going to come charging out and so the gates of hell will not overpower the church. But that's not what Jesus said. He said the gates of Hades, nowhere in scripture do you find demons in Hades. What you find is souls of people who have died. 
prior to Jesus coming, souls in a paradise side of Hades and souls in a torment side of Hades with a great chasm in between. Luke 16, look it up. Jesus describes it. So the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So what's he saying? If it's not the demon hordes pouring out of the black gate of Mordor, what is it? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It is simply a picture of death. Gang, the church will not die. The church cannot die. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus built it. This is the work of His hands, not mine, not yours. Oh, I know certain churches go through struggles. I know churches have problems. They'll split apart. They'll fall apart. They'll close their doors. But the church will not die. I know sometimes the church has to go into hiding. In the catacombs of Rome, or perhaps the taxis of Iran. Did you hear about that? Sharon Hadian, our, our guest speaker last week, was talking about how in Iran, one of the ways they're doing Bible studies now so as to be undetected, is they're getting in taxis and driving around Tehran for an hour and holding Bible study. I love it. You can't stop the church. The church cannot die. You cannot kill what Jesus built. And what it continues to build. So take heart. Be encouraged. Though the whole world seem against you, though the church itself seem to be caving in right and left to cultural relevance, the church cannot die. Jesus built it. Now, of course, the devil would love nothing more than to see the church die. Than to kill it dead. And so he attacks. And as we've already studied in the early chapters of Acts, chapter 3, chapter 4, Peter and John are preaching, there's a miracle, a bunch of people get saved and they get thrown into prison. And they get pulled out and dragged in front of the very same guys who crucified Christ. So there's persecution coming from the outside. And when it comes from the outside, it usually doesn't work too well. In fact, it tends to kind of fire us up. Man, bring it on. The government's going to tell me we can't meet in the barn. We will meet the very next Sunday in the barn. The government tells me that we got to close our doors for one reason or another. We will not close our doors. We will continue to follow Jesus and to trust in His as the highest authority. When attacks come from the outside, we call it persecution. And we all say, yeah, that's the way it is. We're Jesus people. We're being persecuted. Therefore, we're doing it right. But the devil is not an idiot. He changes tactics. And he attacks from the inside. I remember the first time someone came after me inside the church. And going back to Matthew 5 and Jesus saying, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. And I remember specifically praying, Jesus, I don't mind persecution from outside. But from inside, I don't like it at all. It really hurts. Devilish things can emerge within the church. As we recently noted, tares in the wheat, leaven in the dough, bad fish in the net, unclean birds in the branches, bugs in the apples. That's my parable. Acts chapter 20. Paul is speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus and he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves? Oh, he's one of us. So what he's saying, it must be okay. He's a leader in the church. He's a pastor. He's a voice on the Christian stage. If he's saying it, it must be okay. Uh Uh-uh. 
Men from among your own selves. And so in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we see Satan attacking from the outside. In Acts chapter 5, suddenly we see that didn't work, so Satan attacks from within. He goes for the inside track. Follow it through with me. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But, see now, there's your, there's your conjunction right there. We just came out of the congregation who believe we're one heart and soul. Everything's good, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Or my translation, dropped dead. And great fear came over all those who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Peter then said to her, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So much for commonality and kumbaya. So much for the church bearing fruit and growing wonderfully. So much for, it seems, being under grace now and no longer under law. We go from a church that was of one heart and soul to a couple of body bags. Go from the mountaintop of unity to six feet under. From grace to judgment. From what it seems like New Testament to Old Testament again. And the contrast here is intentional. Luke knows what he's doing. Inspired by the Spirit to write this story. William Arnault was a Scottish preacher of the 1800s. He said, in this case you are conducted from Barnabas to Ananias. You step from the bright sunshine of a loving Christian life to the graveyard damp of a hollow hypocrisy. A spirit of darkness caught in the act of putting on the garment of an angel of light. In all the glory, in all the joy, in all the commonality, suddenly there's this very dark scene, this very disturbing, distressing, upsetting scene. Not one for a Sunday morning sermon. Not one to talk about here. Boy, let's avoid that. Maybe, maybe tuck it in somewhere in the middle of a Wednesday night. But you don't want to go there. I want to go there this morning because the effect of this story is not darkening. It's like a lantern leading God's people into what Peter called, 1 Peter 2.9, out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is here to take us out of dark places and into the light, to the place of revelation, to the place of honesty and genuineness. 
And the biblical account here is not gratuitous. It's here to lead us into a holy awe of the Spirit of Jesus. A holy awe. We've been talking a lot about the Spirit lately, haven't we? The the Comforter. The one who comes alongside. The one who indwells those who have faith in Jesus. The one who baptizes with strength and with power. And the one who causes Ananias and Sapphira to drop dead. Same Spirit. Don't blame Peter here or the apostles. They didn't lift a finger. They gave a warning. And what happened, I don't know, it may have surprised Peter at first even. They didn't do it. This was not the apostles' work. Ananias and Sapphira, you could say, were slain by the Spirit. Not in the Spirit. They were not slain in the Spirit. They were slain by the Spirit. People say, you know, I just wish we could see more of the Holy Spirit's power in the church today like they did in the first century. Really? You want that? Can you imagine if that took place here at the bridge on a Sunday morning? Someone comes walking up, hands some money to me, and I say, you haven't lied to the church here, but you're lying to God. They go down. How would that affect attendance the next week? That's the church where people are dying. Perhaps a little holy awe is in order when we talk about, when we consider the Spirit of the Lord. Now, Luke introduces us in this story to three new characters, actually. One who lives up to his name in the ongoing saga. Two who are only in this one episode and are killed off quickly. The first is Joseph. Joseph, whose name you know as Barnabas. He was renamed by the apostles. They nicknamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And, of course, he is a son of encouragement. You'll see him throughout the book of Acts. He's the one who brings Saul into the apostles and says, look, his life has changed. He's one of us now. We need to accept him. Son of encouragement. He's the one who stands up for John Mark. When when Paul the apostle says, I'm done with Mark, he ditched us on the last missionary tour. He's not coming on the next one. And Barnabas says, oh, come on, give him a chance. He's a good guy. He just needs a little opportunity here. Son of encouragement. So that's Barnabas. But we also get the first two examples of tares in the wheat of the church. Ananias. Ananias' name is Hananiah. Hananiah in the Hebrew, which is a similar name, actually the same name as another Bible character you may know of called Shadrach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah is Shadrach. The name means Yahweh is gracious. Which is ironic because Ananias apparently didn't think God was gracious enough so he kept back a little of this money. He needed to hang on to it because God's not really all that gracious. I need to hold this back. Well, Sapphira, his co-conspirator, his wife, her name means beautiful. It's also translated sapphire. Beautiful sapphire. God is gracious. Beautiful sapphire, wealth, royalty, affluence, that's the picture of her name. And perhaps, we don't know, but Ananias and Sapphira may have come out of affluence. Investors, big money people on the stock exchange, you know, that's kind of where they were. And these two, God is gracious and beautiful, come together to act in absolute denial of their own names. But what did they do that was so bad? 
Now, if you've read this story before, if you've heard the story before, maybe you just glossed over it because it's a little intense for the New Testament. But if you've read it, you might wonder that question. Why is God's judgment so harsh? For anyone who's kept back a little of their tithe for summer vacation. For anyone who's, who's skipped a month of giving because, well, you know, it's Christmas and we got to get the kids something. For anyone around tax season who says, mm, we'll, we'll give in May. This kind of situation makes you wonder, how could God be so heavy-handed? Now, note this. Walk this through with me. As the previous uh, section indicates, it all began as a spontaneous act of, if you're taking notes, a common liberality. A common liberality. Throughout the church, verses 32 through 37, I won't read it again, but look, these people were given because they wanted to give. They were poured out because they knew they had been poured out upon. They were gracious because they had an abundant grace from the Lord themselves. They saw it. It was a natural thing. Please note this. This was not forced. It was not compulsory given. There was no early church membership covenant that exacted a specific tithe. Sign the covenant and you owe us 10%. Wasn't there. Didn't happen. You don't see the apostles standing up and calling on the people to dig deep. No special collections. No offerings. People were just doing it because they wanted to. When I was a kid growing up, my parents started a church. I was five years old and we met in people's homes until ultimately we started meeting in an in a elementary school that we'd rent. And so since there were so few of us, everybody was involved. It was all hands in. So I would often take up the offering and my dad would make me give it back. <laughs> There was none of that. They didn't pass the trays. There were no pressure tactics. There was no guilt tripping of any kind. They gave because they wanted to. That's the pattern for the church. That's God's desire for you, for me. That we recognize His abundant grace and we give because we want to give. Freely you received, Jesus said, Matthew 10.8. Freely give. Don't give because someone's shaking a finger because the pastor's preaching on it. And by the way, I'm going to preach on it this morning. But don't do it for that reason. Eventually, Paul would have to encourage giving. He, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth and he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You Greek students know it's a hilarious giver. The word cheerful, hilarion in the Greek. People who are just overjoyed to get the opportunity to give. That's what God's looking for. But doesn't it seem like when material things enter the picture, life gets more complicated? That the more you have, the more you have to worry about. That the more you're into stocks and bonds, the more your head's in the stocks and your feet are in bondage. That you just, now you've got all these plates to keep spinning. Now you've got all this stuff to pay for. Now you have these bills and those bills and, and things that you have to take care of, which is, you know, before maybe you didn't. You know the only overhead that we had when we were working in the barn, having church in the barn? The only overhead we had was plywood. That was it. we got a lot more overhead right now. It's not a bad thing. The Lord has led us. The Lord has blessed us with this place. But the overhead's bigger. It's more complicated. 
You'll see it happening in the early church. In fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, all of a sudden there's a complication. There, there's fighting over the widow's food distribution program. When they didn't have that, it wasn't an issue. But as soon as they have it, conflict, complication. Why? You all know why. Paul said to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Are you longing for it? Are you hungering after it? Money? Stuff? Material things? Are are you desiring that? Hey, I do sometimes. That's exactly what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. It's a financial issue. It's a money thing. It's a material thing. And it's a hungering after what they think they deserve to keep rather than just trusting in the Lord. I believe the best thing for the church is to keep it clean and simple. As best we can to keep what clean and simple? Giving. To just let it be between people and their God. To encourage, to teach, what does the Bible teach about our generosity, about our giving? And again, we're going to get there in a few minutes. But but to allow people just to respond and do what they're going to do between them and the Lord. Because truly that's what it ultimately comes down to, you and Him. A common liberality. A people giving as unto the Lord, trusting Him for the increase and the provision in their own lives. As Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What does that mean? It means He's going to give you more so you can give more. And as you give more, He's going to give you more so you can give more as He gives you more. Do you understand? If you can't outgive God... I'm sure you've heard that. It is not a trite saying. It is absolutely true. And I absolutely believe it. You cannot outgive the Lord. But seek first His kingdom, Matthew 6.33, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what He's really interested in. It's your heart. So they gave freely, they gave joyfully, they gave expectantly, and I believe they gave expectantly, as I said last week, because they expected Jesus to come at any time. And when you live life expecting the coming of Christ, it changes everything. John said in 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There is a purifying effect. Well, the church is about to get purified here. Watch this. Verse 1 of chapter 5. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Second thing, we saw a common liberality going on. Suddenly there is a complicit liability. A complicit liability. Both Ananias and Sapphira, both husband and wife, are in it to sin it. They're in together. They're conspiring together. William Arnaud, that Scottish preacher, also said, there is concert in evil. Evil doesn't like to play a show alone. Evil loves a good partner. Criminality desires collusion. That's how it works. Romans 16, 17, Paul said, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. 
and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters, there is one thing I cannot abide in this church fellowship and will not abide, and that is dissension and division. A divisive spirit is not welcome here. And if that be your spirit, if that be your heart, repent. There are all kinds of sins that we will deal with and, and, and the Lord forgives and, and, and we'll love each other through and find the other side of as we confess and, and walk with Jesus together. But that one, that one that tears the church apart, the Lord hates division. And I would agree with Him. Paul says in Romans 16, 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. You see, sin always wants a partner. Sin always draws others in. It always lures. Ask Adam and Eve. She made me do it. See, that's the thing about sin. If you can sin with someone else, you can always blame them. It was her fault. And of course, Eve's like... Snake! It was a serpent! It wasn't me! Sin loves a partner. Now you might say, okay, but what's wrong with them keeping back some of the price for themselves? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you sold some property and you took 10% and you gave it to the church. What's wrong with that? Isn't that okay? Peter asks Ananias the same thing. Verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. Listen, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It wasn't this land yours in the first place? And after it was sold, was that not under your control? You have not. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So now we have a compound duplicity. This is not just about that he didn't give the whole amount. That's not the issue. That's not a problem. He kept back. Note that phrase, kept back. In the Greek, it's nospizomai. And nospizomai means to pilfer or to misappropriate funds. We see the same word used by Paul writing to Titus. Titus chapter 2 verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not misappropriating funds, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. Don't pilfer. So in essence, that's what Peter just said. That's what the Bible tells us, verse 2, that he pilfered some of the price for himself. He kept it back. It wasn't that he just kept back some of the price. It's that he said he gave it all. I'm going to give you everything. Yeah, we saw this house going to land here at your feet. It's all yours. Yeah. Except for this. And he lied about it. To misappropriate funds. You know who else did that? Judas. Judas pilfered. John tells us in chapter 12, verse 6, that he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, if Judas is not a picture of the seriousness of the sin, I don't know who is. Judas, for three years, is ripping off Jesus. Just taking a little here, a little there. Someone gives a 20, he keeps two. Someone gives a 100 shekels, he keeps 10. No one's going to notice. Who's it really hurting? You know, they're still... 
ministry is still going forward. People are getting fed, taking care of. No big deal. Besides, Jesus can always make you know fishes and loaves and feed five thousand. So what's the big deal if I keep an extra twenty bucks? That was Judas. Ananias and Sapphira were the first to misappropriate funds from the church, but they were not the first to pilfer money from Jesus. Actually, neither was Judas. You go all the way back to the prophet Malachi, and the Lord spoke through Malachi, chapter 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I will do this. Test me. Try me. But you bring what you committed to bring. You know, financial duplicity actually goes even back further than that to a man named Achan. Hold that thought for a minute. You know what giving is really all about? I told you I was going to talk about this, so let's do it. You know what giving is really about? It's one word. Faith. Faith. It is not about supporting the church. It is not about paying the pastor's salary. It's not about filling the coffers. It is about faith. Because the Lord knows something about the heart of man, the heart of woman. If we trust Him with our money, we're going to trust Him with a whole lot of other things as well. If we don't trust Him with our money, we're going to have trouble trusting Him in many other areas. I mean this question very gently and very tenderly, so please take it this way. Are you struggling with your faith right now? Are you having a hard time doing what you kind of know the Lord wants you to do? Are you struggling with believing? Because if you are, I would say the first place to look is at your giving. Because the two are intimately connected. The degree to which you trust the Lord financially is the degree to which you will walk in faith. Well, that's offensive, Pastor. Hey, I don't know what anybody gives, so if you're offended, that's between you and him. But the truth is, holding back financially tends to hold back faith. Faith cannot, I'm speaking personally here, from personal life experience, okay? Faith cannot go forward if finances are being held back. If I'm not trusting God in this area. Holding tight to finances will kill faith. Now understand, the Bible does not encourage grumpy giving either. God does not want anyone to give grudgingly. If you feel forced, if you feel cajoled or pushed into giving, listen, keep it. Don't give it here if you feel like you're forced to do so. Lord doesn't need it. We don't need it. What the Lord needs is a people whose faith is increasing. And if you want to increase in your faith, consider how you're giving. This whole thing feeds a compound duplicity. That is, lying to the church, lying to the Lord, and lying to self. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. Compound duplicity. It was affecting everything. The pilfering of Judas 
hardened his heart to betray Jesus. Ultimately, over the three and a half or so years of Jesus' ministry, he took, he took, he took, he took, until he betrayed. The pilfering of Ananias and Sapphira resulted in their immediate death. Verse 5, As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his Last. I want you to know I prayed all morning that no one would fall down and breathe their last after we read that this morning. So, you all seem to be okay. Fell down and died, right then and there. Question, how was his money working for him then? The amount that he held back? How did it help him out of the grave? Verse 5 continues. And great fear came over all those who heard of it. Of course it did. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. There left an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And we're told Peter responded to her. Why does Peter respond to her? Because she probably already started the conversation. He's responding to something that she says. She walks in, I think maybe looking for Ananias. Have you seen my husband? Because he was coming by here to drop off, you know. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Peter's not playing with her. He is extending an offer of salvation. He is extending an offer of grace. All she has to say in that moment is, no, no, that's, that's not. But she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. (laughs) Imagine being the young men. Are you kidding me? And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Why did they do it? As Peter said, they could have done anything they wanted to with the money. It was their money. God had given it to them. Everything you have, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. It's all from Him. But when He gives it to you, He freely gives it for you to use as you see fit. It was theirs. Why did they do it? I think in the context of the story, it all had to do with a simple word, hypocrisy. You see, the church was rolling. People are given. Barnabas is the man of the hour, you know? And that wasn't his intention. He just did what he did. But I think word got around, hey, you hear about that? Barnabas, what a guy. What a godly man. What faithfulness. That's, that's a picture of trust right there. And so Ananias is thinking, I want a slice of that. I want to be one of the godly men in the church. I want to be seen as righteous. It's what I would call a comparative respectability. A comparative respectability. Check me out. I'm like he is. He gave X amount, I'm giving X amount. He sold the land and gave it all, I'm selling my land and giving it all. I'm another Barnabas, hey, look at me. The whole reason for this facade of generosity is to keep up appearances. It is hypocrisy to appear as though they were something they were not. Ananias and Sapphira, I think, I'm going to read into this a little bit. I think Ananias and Sapphira had a big money problem. In that they loved it. They wanted it. Her name was Sapphire. 
They were into the whole affluence thing. But they're watching everybody be so generous. It's like, I want to be seen that way, but I really don't want to sacrifice what's required to get there, so let's pretend. Let's just pretend. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask. The word hypocrite was first used of actors in Shakespearean plays or old Greek plays. Those who wear a mask, those who act as though they are something they are not. Jesus calls hypocrisy lip service. To the Pharisees, he quotes Isaiah. He says, you hypocrites, Matthew 15, 7. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's the issue. The heart. Sorry to yell, but I get a little passionate about this. God is not interested in us dressing it up. Christianity is never about the look. Never about the look. It is about the heart. Don't dress to impress. Don't worship to look holy. Don't give to get noticed. That's why we hang the boxes in the back so the tray is not coming by. So people can't notice what's being given or or who's consistent in their giving. That is between you and the Lord. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's heart. We walk into church and the natural inclination of the flesh is to be holy, to look holy, to act holy. Here. Until we're ten feet outside the door, and then we're back to life as usual. You know, in the language, the things we say, the things we do. But when we're here, how you doing, brother? Amen, sister. All the godly talk comes out. I'm not saying that about you all. I'm really not. But this game of hypocrisy is not what the church is about. And these two surfacey believers conspire to lie to the church, to lie to the Holy Spirit, and both dropped dead, and it was all hypocrisy. But God sees right through it. Still not convinced the punishment fits the crime. I read over this several times thinking, Lord, this is intense. This is very serious. It almost seems too much. Maybe it's because so many of us can relate to keeping something back. Maybe it's because we, like Ananias and Sapphira, have done the exact same thing. You know? Implied holiness. Did something purposefully that made us look more the part, and yet behind the scenes, we're still hanging on to something. Maybe the reason why this story is so unnerving is we've grown comfortable with harmless little sins. Little deceits, personal pilferings, you know. It's not the big stuff. Just, you know, a little of this here, a little of that there. I've got a whole list of little church sins running through my head right now. I'm not going to throw them at you. Because some of them are mine. (laughs) Honestly, I think the reason churches right now in our culture are caving in on the big stuff 
the big stuff, big cultural rebellion to God's Word. I think the reason why churches are doing it is they're so used to giving in on the little stuff. That for far too long, we have caved on holiness. We have set aside righteousness. We've said, it's cool. It's not a big deal. No worries. Just kind of go. Do your thing. And, and yeah, I know, I know you're doing that stuff on the side, but that's alright. It's okay. The places we go, the movies we watch, the books we read, whatever. And so we have men like T.D. Jakes coming out for gay marriage. Tony Campolo, full support, wrote an op-ed in full support of gay marriage. Leaders in the church, at least as far as the public eye, the media would see. Because it's easy to cave on the little things, it becomes easier and easier to cave on the big things. And I think, please hear me on this, I think Peter was spot on when he wrote in 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Peter said, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Oh, Rick, I don't know about this. You want us to become a judging church? Won't that drive people away? We're going to be all fundamentalist and judgmental and intolerant and bigoted and we're going to be all those things. Is that what you're driving at? Here's what I'm driving at. I want us all, each and every one, to judge ourselves in light of the holiness of God. I'm not your judge. What I'm calling on you all to do is what I've been called on by the Lord to do this week. Judge yourself. Stand in the light of His abundant grace and ask yourself... Am I winking at sin? Am I denying who God really is by my own character, by my own behavior? I need, and I hope you join me in this, I need to stop being so casual about sin. That's part of the problem. We're so used to casually accepting little sins and and foibles and problems and and we call them mistakes that we read something like the death of Ananias and Sapphira for what seems to be a paltry little lie and we go, wow, that's heavy, God. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. There is no sin in Him. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And we read this and go, Lord, you're being a little harsh. Listen, sin is a killer. Sin is a killer. Little or big, it will kill you. Jesus said in John 8.21 to the Pharisees, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus repeated, John 8.24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Paul says, Romans 3.23, The wages of sin is death. That's the answer. That's where it goes. Big sin, little sin, doesn't matter. The wages of sin is death. And here at the wink at the end of the age, I don't believe that we can afford to wink at sin any longer. I don't think the church ever should have. 
But I believe that the, the Lord is calling His church back to a place of holiness. Back to a place of rejecting all those little things that we've been okay with for far too long. And if it still bothers you that Ananias and Sapphira died in their sin on that day, how much more should it bother us that people die in their sins every day? You want to be upset about something? Be upset that your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, should your neighbor die, will go to hell. That's upsetting. That's serious business. Be upset that we're surrounded in this community by people who do not know Jesus and will not go where He is unless they believe that He is I Am. Unless they accept that He is God. Let me put it this way. Where is the compassion for lost people in all this tolerance? You know, it's the exact opposite. People say you should be more tolerant and therefore more compassionate. The more compassionate I am, the less tolerant I am of sin. It is not compassionate to sweep something under the rug and watch someone die separated from God. That's not compassion. It's compassion to love people enough to tell them the truth. Well, Rick, it is a big deal. Why don't we see this kind of punishment happening in the church today? Well, first of all, do you want it to? (laughs) And secondly, maybe we do. Maybe we do see this happening in the church today. What do you mean? Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and he said in 1 Corinthians 11.29, He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, before I read the next verse, which is the verse I wanted to get to, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves when we share communion if we don't judge the body rightly. When I was a kid, I thought that meant I need to really focus on the body of Jesus. And I would imagine the holes in his hands from the nails. And I would imagine the the nails in his feet and the blood pouring out. And I would imagine the slice in his side as the Roman soldier speared him. And I would imagine his body. And I would try to focus on his body because I thought if if I rightly consider his body... Then, then I won't be judged while I'm taking communion. But in the context of what Paul is saying, what he's saying is if you don't rightly judge the body, if you don't rightly discern the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters, as you share in this common practice of communion, you will end up judged. What is he saying? He's saying if there's someone sitting on one side of the church looking with malicious, mean-spirited eyes at someone sitting on the other side of the church, judgment. You're angry with someone in this fellowship because they've done you wrong and man, you're going to let them know it by that skeevy little look. Judgment. You are not discerning the body. We are the body of Christ. And as such, a people to be loved. One and all. So he says, if you don't judge the body rightly, you're taking communion, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And then Paul writes, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. What? Paul's saying, church of Corinth, you guys are so out of control where communion is concerned, people are dying. People are getting sick. People are, are subject to disease. Why? Because you are not discerning the body. And so there were, there was immediate outcome. I wonder, I do. Is there immediate outcome sometimes in the church today when we treat each other so badly? 
we wouldn't know because we don't pay attention to those spiritual things. How dare you say that someone died because they weren't rightly judging the body of Christ? How judgmental of you. I'm just saying it may be going on and we have lost sight of it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. That's where judgment has to happen. Not from the pastor to the church, not from shepherds to the church, not from one church member to the other church member. The judgment has to happen from church person inside themselves, to themselves. You judging yourself in terms of all these things. What does that mean? Man, it means check your heart. It means seek sanctification. It means go after, pursue purity. It means if money is an issue for you, don't wait until the next sermon to squirm in your seat. Deal with it, man. Pray about it, woman. Take it before the Lord. Lord, you know I've struggled with this whole giving thing. Help me. Help me learn what it means. Teach me how to to trust you with it. I went through that process. I still sometimes, I've told you before, there's still sometimes where I'm sitting down writing bills. I'm looking at the check for the church and I'm going, (laughs) I really could use that this week, Lord. I think I've also told you before what the Lord always says to me in those situations. Okay, that's fine. Go ahead. Use it. Or you can trust me, but you do what you think is best. Gets me every time. Listen, there's another reason that the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira was so harsh there at the outset. God is protecting the purity of the infant church. Like you parents would protect the purity of a brand new little baby. You wouldn't let someone say anything bad about them. You wouldn't let anybody touch them. In fact, a lot of you don't bring them to church because you're afraid we're all going to be touching them. We protect what is new, what needs time to grow, to be strong. And the Lord has this fledgling infant church, brand new baby believers all together, and He is protecting it. And Ananias and Sapphira come along like tares among the wheat, and God says, not yet. Oh, there's going to be tares in the wheat, but not yet, not until the wheat is firmly rooted. Not until the church is strong enough to deal with the kind of sin that you're trying to bring in right now. And God did the same thing with the children of Israel. With the infancy of the church and the children of Israel. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, Israel was in a a victorious place, just like the church, man. Everybody's given, there's victory, there's joy, it's moving forward, it's growing, it's glorious. Israel was like that. They had just destroyed Jericho. This this ragtag band of people out of slavery in Egypt just destroyed Jericho. They're taking the promised land. They're in the land that God has given them. It's all glory. It's all splendor. And Achan, no one's going to know. God says when you destroy Jericho, do not take anything of the plunder. He put a ban on taking plunder from Jericho. Don't do it. Joshua chapter 6, Joshua chapter 7. So Achan looks around and goes, who's it going to hurt really? I just take a little something for me. He takes a mantle of Shinar. He takes, I don't know, several hundred shekels of silver. He takes a gold bar worth 500 shekels, tucks it in the bag, and buries it under his tent. Who's it going to hurt really? Joshua chapter 22 verse 20 says, Did not Achan the son of Zerah act unfaithfully in the things under the ban? And wrath 
fall on all the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. And if God had looked the other way with Ananias and Sapphira, they would not have been the only two to go down. Others would have followed suit. In Achan's case, who's it hurt for me to have a little, you know, a mantle? It's kind of cool. I'll hang it on the wall someday when this all blows over. See, I got it from somewhere else. Who's it going to hurt? His entire family, for one. And some, is it 30,000? I'm not sure of the number. Like 30,000, I believe, of the sons of Israel who went off to fight the next battle and God was not with them and they got routed and 30,000 died. Because one man thought he would skirt the Lord. And the Lord in the early days of Israel said, "Uh uh-uh. That is not going to happen. Sin brought the destruction of so many. And by the way, I mentioned Achan because in Joshua 22, verse 20, and in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, there's a single word that is used, act unfaithfully. Achan acted unfaithfully. And it is the same word that Luke uses here. What do you mean? By the time Luke is writing the New Testament, he's using the Septuagint. Some of you know it's also called the LSS. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And by Jesus' day, the reason why sometimes you'll read a verse in the New Testament, it's not exactly the same as in the Old Testament, slight wording difference, is because they're quoting out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the original Hebrew Scriptures. The Greek Septuagint, in telling the story of Achan, uses the same exact word that Luke uses right here when he says that Ananias kept back, nospizomai, some of the proceeds. Achan kept back, he nospizomai. <laughs> same thing. And I believe Luke is drawing a parallel here for us to understand. In both instances, as God's children and then as the church are beginning to grow and things are beginning to happen, sin enters the camp and God says, nope, I will not allow that. Why? Because for the infant church to grow, it had to be pure. It had to be pure. And what enters into the picture right now is pure fear. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Look at this. And great fear, second time now that Luke writes this, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Apparently there are parking places for accords and odysseys or whatever you drive. Verse 13, and none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. There you go. Pure fear. Immediately, church growth stops, which you would expect. I was going to go visit the bridge, but after that, you know, couple died off there, I'm, I'm not thinking it's such a good idea. What kind of a growth strategy is this, Lord? I understand punishing them, but man, take them somewhere else and punish them. You're going to destroy the whole movement of the early church. People see people are dying. That's a bad thing. Don't we want to grow? Don't we want more people? And Charles Spurgeon said, thank God for the blessed subtractions. You know, sometimes the best thing for the church is for people not to come. People to stop coming. Or to go to, you know, First Baptist. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> what I'm talking about here and what we see, where it says none of the rest dared to associate with them, we are talking about the half-hearted, the hypocritical, 
the lackadaisical people, the Ananiases and Sapphiruses in the crowd, who might have jumped in on the bandwagon of this movement, but when they see how serious it is, they go, <laughs> I think we're fine. We'll just say, you do your thing. We're just, yeah, I'm stepping back. Listen, the church cannot be the church with contempt for holiness, with disregard for purity. The church is not the church when we're trying so hard to look like the world that we are becoming impure ourselves. And what God does here is absolutely perfect. As you would expect, fear is purifying. Fear is purifying. Great fear? I don't like that. Well, you may not like it, but sometimes you need it. Fear is purifying. And Luke shows us two immediate results here at the very end. Real quickly, he shows us, first of all, this incredible compound multiplicity. I mean, it just starts growing like wildfire. What? I thought you said it wasn't growing. Look at verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Boom! We thought it was exploding before. Now it's not a few thousand. Now it's multitudes are coming to the Lord. But I thought verse 13 said that people weren't associating with them after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. I thought, you know, that that was a killer right there as to any kind of church growth. Listen, it's about believers. The people who were no longer associating with them, who backed off of the church in the early days very quickly, were those who had no faith anyway. They were just going for the widow's offering. They were going for the potluck. They were going for the food distribution. They were going because, wow, this cool thing's happening, and a lot of my friends are involved, so I think I'll go check it out. But they had no heart, they had no desire to be involved. Suddenly now, multitudes are coming, and look at how they're described in verse 14. Believers in the Lord. People are coming to faith in the Lord. And by the way, this bothers me. There's, there are two words added at the end of verse 14 that the translators added, I think, thinking they were doing a good thing. Their number. More believers in the Lord were, were all the more multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You know what that is? That's church thinking. Well, of course, more people were added, so their number, the number of people in the church were getting bigger. That's not the point. They were not added to their number. They were added to the Lord. They were added to His church. More and more multitudes were coming to faith in Jesus, not faith in the church. Because I guarantee you, if it was about faith in the church, no one would come because of the death that had happened. If that's how they handle things, they're killing off people who aren't given, I'm not going. It was faith in the Lord. It wasn't about popularity, it wasn't about jumping on the bandwagon of this movement. People were coming to true faith, truly believing in Jesus. And all the more because the Lord purified His church. Because he would not allow that kind of riffraff to go on. He stopped it. He cleaned up the church. Cleaned house as it were. And those who truly would come to faith in Jesus flooded in. And the church grew strong. My friends, holiness and awe are a powerful, powerful combination. There's one last thing that we see taking place. I'm going to talk about it more on Wednesday, but let me just read it to you. Verse 15. We're told that... 
to such an extent, all these people are coming, that they even carried the sick out onto, into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that Peter, when he came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Shadow healing. You won't see it anywhere else. That's profound. That's huge. That's powerful. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Why were unclean spirits being driven out? Because the church was clean. Why were impure diseases being healed? Because the church was pure. Because the Spirit was working in and among His people. And so we see this amazing crescendo of supernatural activity. Man, the church is moving now. And again, we're going to talk about that more on Wednesday. But listen closely here. Psalm 19, verse 9. says, The fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous all together. If we want to be like the first century church, if we want to simply be the church, being the church, then we must reject the mask of self-righteousness. We must toss out facades and pretense and rather choose the fear of the Lord and the filling of His Holy Spirit in awe, in purity, in holiness as Jesus continues to build His church as He will. God hates sin. God hates sin. Get that down. Make a note of it. God hates sin. All sin. But... God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's stand up together. Father, as we take a moment and consider Your Word before us this morning, as I ponder the great fear that was on the church, I truly believe, Lord, that it is with great fear that we ought to approach You. It's such a dichotomy. Great fear and great boldness. And we're to come to You with both. Fearful because of who You are and how awesome how perfect, how pure and holy You are. But bold, Father, because of the death of Jesus. That Jesus died to sin that we could live by grace. We approach You, Father, as a people in the last days who need to be pure. And I I believe this, Lord, we need purity more than anything in the last days. If we're going to continue to see people saved up until Jesus comes, we have to do it your way, not our way. And I pray that you will teach us and challenge us to do things your way. And I ask, Lord, that you will start with each individual heart this morning. 
Start with the person, even before you deal with all of us together as a fellowship. Start with me, Lord. And speak into our hearts. And as David once said, show us our secret sins. Reveal the things in us, in in me, Lord, that are not faithful, that are compromising, that are impure. Oh, Father, reveal those things. Bring them to the surface that I might be clean before You in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. And may we in purity, Father, be evermore in awe of You, recognizing that holiness never comes from us, but it is a gift of our Father. We praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to respond to the Lord in any way, if He's tagged you with any thoughts, if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, if you want to be baptized in water or baptized in the Spirit, please come forward while we sing together. Prayer team, come on up.